Good morning. If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. My favorite song to sing in church is A Mighty Fortress is Our God, but the song that we sang just a moment ago, Christ, Our Hope in Life and Death, that's rapidly climbing the charts for me. That is a wonderful, wonderful song, encouraging in many ways. John chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning, very important chapter in John's gospel, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 15. John chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. Please follow along with me in your copy of God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray and ask God to bless our time in his word this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your grace that we would know and understand, believe, obey, and apply all that you have revealed in your word concerning Jesus Christ, faith in him, and righteousness, Father, in his name. Help us, God. We know that anytime we open your word, we stand in need of the Holy Spirit's illumination. And so we ask for that even now, Father, that you would grant us grace through your Holy Spirit that we might believe the scriptures. Father, keep me from error. Please grant your people discernment this morning that we would all hold fast to the truth and thus be saved in Christ on that final day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 3 is ground zero for getting the gospel right. As I say that, you might think, of course it is. The most famous chapter, the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3:16, is in this chapter. Of course this is ground zero for getting the gospel right. 
And that is true. This is where we find the wonderful truth, the nearly unfathomable truth, a truth that the Father loved the world in the giving of His Son. And yet, the Father's love in John 3.16 is not the only treasure in this remarkably rich chapter. Here we find the truth of how one enters the kingdom of God. Of how a person goes from being outside God's family to being an adopted, beloved member of God's family. Here we find how sinners go from death to life. From being under the wrath of God to receiving life in the Son of God. And all of that, friends, all of that happens before we get to John 3.16. As J.C. Ryle, the 19th century Anglican, once said, a man may be ignorant of many things and still be a Christian. But if he is ignorant of the things that we find in John 3, then he is on the high road that leads to destruction. John chapter 3, as a whole, is ground zero for getting the gospel right. The significance of John chapter 3 can be captured in one sentence from Jesus in verse 7. You must be born again. Anytime Jesus tells us what we must do, we ought to pay attention. And Jesus says you must be born again. The new birth, in other words, is non-negotiable to biblical Christianity. There are not two classes of Christians, those who have born again and those who've been born again and those who are not. To be born again is to be a Christian. And Jesus himself demands this. Clearly then, John chapter 3 touches on indispensable, eternally significant truth. It's ground zero for getting the gospel right. And yet, many people remain quite unclear on what Jesus means by being born again. Just this week, for example, I saw the phrase born again Christian used to describe everyone from evangelicals to fundamentalists, to cultural Christians with uh, certain voting patterns. That's a wide range of people to describe with the phrase born-again Christian. And that illustrates my point. For all of the familiarity and significance of John chapter 3, we're not always clear on what it means to be born again. We're not always clear on what Jesus means. Why does Jesus use such absolute language? How does the new birth happen? And how do you know the new birth when you see it? Friends, all of those questions are answered in John chapter 3. And that means for the next few weeks, we're going to study this important chapter that is ground zero for getting the gospel right. I had originally planned to go all the way to verse 21 this morning, but there's way too much. There's way too much here. So for today, we're going to start where we have to start. And that's with Jesus' teaching on being born again. In terms of doctrine, what we're talking about this morning is the doctrine of regeneration. Regeneration. This truth shows up all through the New Testament, most notably in places like Ephesians 2, 1 Peter 1, Titus 3, 1 John 3. 
the doctrine of regeneration, in other words, is foundational to New Testament Christianity. And much of that foundation is laid right here by Jesus in John chapter 3. So if you love Ephesians 2 that says we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but then God made us alive together in Christ, where does Paul get that idea? Right here, John 3, from Jesus. It's foundational the doctrine of regeneration and the foundation is laid here by Jesus in John 3. Our plan then is straightforward. We need to understand the new birth according to Jesus. Not according to our own ideas, not according to what we think we might know, but according to Jesus, what does it mean to be born again? We're going to consider Jesus' teaching in three statements. Three truths that taken together define the new birth. When you leave today, I hope by God's grace that you will be able to say what the new birth is according to Jesus. The first truth has to do with human nature. The second truth has to do with the work of the Spirit. And the third truth has to do with the message of the cross. So three truths from Jesus to define the new birth. That's where we're going. Let's start in verses 1 to 3. By nature, no one can enter the kingdom of God. That's truth number one. By nature, no one can enter the kingdom of God. In verse one, Jesus introduces us to Nicodemus. And what stands out about Nicodemus is his status as an authoritative teacher. Verse one tells us that Nicodemus is a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews. The Pharisees, you probably know, were students of the Mosaic Law. They advocated for strict application of Scripture to everyday life. This is a guy who ought to know his Bible. At the same time, Nicodemus is likely a member of the Sanhedrin. That's the group of men who were responsible for overseeing Israel's religious life. When you put those things together, it's clear that Nicodemus is a man of high standing. He's a student of scripture, he's a recognized leader, and he's a follower of the law. This is no slouch, in other words. And that makes verse 2 a bit noteworthy. Nicodemus, who is himself a teacher, comes to Jesus with respect. Look at verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus has no formal training as a rabbi, and yet Nicodemus calls him a teacher. At a minimum, that's a sign of respect. Nicodemus also recognizes Jesus' authority. He says, we know that you're a teacher come from God because we see the signs that you do. He recognizes on some level that Jesus has authority. So all of this appears very respectful perhaps even open-minded. Maybe this Pharisee and ruler of the Jews wants to learn the truth. But if you think about verse 2, there's also a note of confusion here. If what Nicodemus says about Jesus is true, that he's a teacher with God's power, then why would Nicodemus come under the cover of night in secret? If Jesus is really a teacher who comes with God's power, why question him at all? Why not just follow him? You see, there's, there's an ominous undertone here. Nicodemus appears to see something in Jesus, but he doesn't actually see. For all of his credentials, for all of his morality, for all of his authority, 
Nicodemus is missing something essential. What is that something? Jesus tells us in verse 3. Notice the abrupt change in the conversation. Verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Technically, Nicodemus hasn't asked any questions yet. (laughs) And yet Jesus knows his heart. Do you remember verse 25 from chapter 2? Last week, Jesus knows what is in each person. And Jesus knows that Nicodemus needs the new birth. Apart from being born again, no one, including Nicodemus, can see the kingdom of God. No one. And that note of absolute necessity is key, friends. The kingdom of God refers to God's redemptive rule and reign over all things. The other gospel writers teach about God's kingdom more often than John. John only references it here and one other time in his gospel when Jesus stands before Pilate. So that tells us it's important in this pivotal chapter that Jesus is speaking about the kingdom of God. And and Jesus' point is that apart from the new birth, no one enters God's redemptive reign. Without the new birth, no one receives citizenship in the kingdom. Now, for Nicodemus, this would have been shocking to hear. Utterly shocking. Within Judaism in Jesus' day, it was assumed that every Israelite is getting into the kingdom of God. And that certainly would have been true for people like the Pharisees. Those who took the law seriously, who studied the scriptures, and who meticulously applied God's standards. So if anybody, if anybody is getting into the kingdom of God, it would be someone like Nicodemus. And yet Jesus could not be clearer. Apart from the new birth, no one, not even Nicodemus, enters the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter how outwardly devout you are. It doesn't matter that your physical lineage puts you in the bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Even then, you must be born again, Jesus says. The new birth is an absolute necessity. Why? Why is that? Well, it has to do with human nature. Look back at verse 2, where John says that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. You see that? On one level, John is just reporting facts in verse 2. When did Nicodemus come? He he came at night. He's just reporting the facts. But the Apostle John's language is often working on multiple levels. And, And this is one of those instances. This is an excellent example of that. In John's gospel, night or darkness often pictures a spiritual reality. If you think back to the prologue to John chapter 1, John says that Jesus is the true light who has come into the world. If Jesus is light, then darkness is opposition to Jesus. Or if we think ahead to chapter 13, when Judas goes out to betray Jesus, John says, as Judas is leaving that upper room, John includes this very short sentence where he says, and it was night. 
Judas goes out into the opposition to Jesus. He goes out into the darkness because that's where his heart was. The darkness of opposing God. And that same dynamic is likely at work here in chapter 3. If coming into the light means receiving the truth, then operating at night, residing in darkness, means that you're separated from the truth. It means that you're opposing the things of God. And friends, that's human nature according to the Apostle John and according to every other book of the Bible. By nature, our hearts reside in the darkness of sin's tyranny. And our minds reside in the ignorance of sin. By nature, we cannot enter the kingdom of God because sin blinds us from seeing the truth. By nature, we cannot enter the kingdom of God because sin enslaves us. And that enslavement is so deep that even when the king over God's kingdom is standing in front of us doing miraculous signs, we won't believe him, we'll question him, we'll oppose him. We won't enter in, we can't enter in because our hearts are mired in darkness. You see, this is why Jesus abruptly jumps to being born again in verse 3. This is, this is so key here. Jesus is not blurting out random sayings in, in verse 3. He's, he's not coming out of left field. As the Son of God, Jesus knows what is in every human heart, including Nicodemus's heart. Jesus knows that Nicodemus, like every other person who has ever lived, cannot enter the kingdom on his own. He must be born again. Brothers and sisters, what was true for Nicodemus remains true for every person alive, including you and me. There is nothing inherent in us that can merit our entry into God's kingdom. Remember, to enter God's kingdom is just another way of saying to receive God's redemption. So this is an eternally significant issue. And there's nothing in us by nature that can merit our entry into the kingdom of God. By nature, we are outside the kingdom, mired in sin, enslaved to the darkness of this age. We have no ability to get ourselves into God's kingdom. We have no spiritual merit that we can trade for citizenship in heaven. We can perform no religious duty that would open the gates of Zion to us. By nature, we are outside. And therefore, every person who's ever lived stands in need of the new birth. So if you're here this morning, I just want to be real frank with you. If you're here this morning and you are banking your eternal future on something inside of you, something inherent in yourself, then friend, I pray that you hear God's word this morning. You were born into this world with a fallen, sinful nature, and that means there's nothing in you that can bring you into God's presence. Your good deeds are not nearly good enough to earn God's favor. Your religious performance, no matter how deeply performed and no matter how deeply held, is but filthy rags when compared to the righteousness of the presence of God. 
Friends, that's the truth for every person who's ever lived. By nature, you and I are sinners. And that means just like Nicodemus, just like this authoritative teacher of the law in Israel, just like Nicodemus, we must be born again. Now, that raises some necessary questions, doesn't it? If being born again is an absolute necessity, then what exactly is it and how does it happen? You see from Nicodemus' life, you see the need, and we know the same need applies to every person. So what is the new birth and how does it happen? That's where Jesus turns in verses 4 to 8, and this is the second truth on the new birth. By nature, no one can enter the kingdom of God, but by the Spirit, God grants new life. By the Spirit, God grants new life. Nicodemus, for his part, doesn't understand. This is further evidence of his need for the new birth. Look again at verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So Nicodemus is thinking solely from an earthly perspective. In his mind, Jesus' Jesus's words are preposterous, since you, you, you cannot literally be born again. There's probably also a note of scorn in verse 4, when, when Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he is old? There's probably a note of scorn here, like Nicodemus is saying, what does this traveling teacher from Galilee actually know? Jesus responds by pointing to a source of truth that Nicodemus should know. The Old Testament. Notice verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now you can see what Jesus did with his answer. He took the phrase from uh, born again in verse 3, and he replaced it with born of water and the Spirit in verse 5. So he's defining the new birth as being born of water and the Spirit. This is the crux of interpretation here. What does it mean to be born of water and the Spirit? Well, a number of interpretations have been offered down through the centuries. Some people hold that water represents physical birth, while the Spirit represents spiritual birth, so that Jesus is just repeating what he said in verse 3, that by nature you can't enter the kingdom of God, but only by the Spirit being born again you can enter in. That's one interpretation. That interpretation is unlikely because no one in John's day used water as a symbolism for physical birth. So that's unlikely. Another interpretation says that water in verse 5 represents baptism. So that the new birth happens by the Spirit through the water of baptism. This view has a number of problems, mainly the rest of the New Testament's teaching on baptism. In the New Testament, baptism is always connected with a profession of faith in Christ, not with the Spirit's activity of giving new life. To say it a different way, Christian baptism pictures the new life that we receive in God, but it does not cause the new life we receive in God. So verse 5 is not teaching baptismal regeneration because that's not in the Bible. 
So what does Jesus mean in verse 5? Not surprisingly, the answer is found in the Old Testament, which Nicodemus should know. The background here is Ezekiel 36. And since this is so key for understanding the new birth, we need to spend a few minutes here. You don't need to look up Ezekiel 36 in your Bible because it's on the front of your bulletin. Ezekiel 36. In the run-up to Ezekiel 36, God's people are in a perilous position. You could even say a lifeless position. They are under the judgment of God for their failure to keep the covenant. And their sinful idolatry has led them into exile. But abruptly, in chapter 36 of Ezekiel, God intervenes. And in an act of grace, God recreates His people. He promises to sprinkle them with water, verse 25, which symbolizes His work to cleanse them of their sin. He then promises to put His Spirit within them, verse 27, so that they will walk in His ways. And all of this is summarized as God giving them a new heart, verse 26. In a way, Ezekiel 36 is promising that God would give His people a new birth. Water to cleanse them from their sin. The Spirit to grant them new life. God's people would be made new by an act of God's Spirit. And friends, that's what Jesus has in mind in John chapter 3 when he says you must be born of water and the Spirit. He's drawing on the Old Testament. Which is why he tells Nicodemus in verse 7, you shouldn't be surprised. Why do you marvel at this? I'm just teaching what the prophets taught, Jesus is saying. How does one enter the kingdom of God? Just like Ezekiel said they would. Not through anything in us, not through anything done by us, but only through the work of God's Spirit, which will cleanse us from our sins and give us new hearts that will follow God. Through the Spirit, God grants life to His people. Ezekiel promised it. Jesus preached it. Friends, most fundamentally, this is what it means to be born again. This is the biblical definition of regeneration. It means that God, by His Spirit, takes out your heart of stone that is dead in sin, and God, by His Spirit, gives you a new heart that delights to obey Him and follow Him in His Word. This is why Jesus says in verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Like produces like, you might say. If anyone would enter God's kingdom, you must be given life not through the flesh, which produces nothing. The flesh only produces the flesh. You must have life through the Spirit. Because God works through His Spirit to grant His people New life. The prophets promised it. Jesus is preaching it. Now, we're clearly in the realm of mercy and grace at this point. Right? We're clearly in the realm of mercy and grace. God does not owe anyone the new birth. So Jesus is emphasizing the grace of God in his interaction with Nicodemus. That fact alone is amazing. But Jesus takes it a step further. Not only does God grant life by His Spirit, but God's work cannot be stopped. Look at verse 8. Notice what Jesus says. 
The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus uses a play on words here. In the original, wind and spirit are the same word. So you can follow Jesus' analogy. Just as you cannot control the wind, so also no one can dictate or control or limit the Holy Spirit. The wind blows wherever it's going to blow. And the Spirit of God grants life wherever God wills it to do so. Wills Him to do so. To say it a different way, to say it a different way from verse 8, the Holy Spirit is completely and sovereignly free in His work to grant new life. Who determines when and where the new birth takes place? Who determines that? God does. Through the work of His Spirit. And friends, this is unbelievably good news. <laughs> Anytime the Bible affirms the sovereignty of God in saving His people, that is good news. We should not question God at this point, and neither should we argue with His freedom. That would miss the incredible encouragement present in verse 8. When Jesus says, the wind blows wherever it wills, and the Spirit grants life wherever He wills, He's also saying to you there that God's purposes cannot be stopped. If the new life is the work of God, then no one can stop that work. When God determines to save sinners, no one can say to him, what have you done? No one can stop his hand from acting. No one can stand against God's redemptive purposes. Just make it even more personal. When God determined to save you, dear Christian, there was nothing in you that could stand in his way. Not even the hardness of your own heart. The wind blows where it wills, and God by His Spirit grants life wherever He wills. This is good news. Friend, if you, were, if you and I were responsible for getting ourselves into this new life, then we would also be responsible for keeping ourselves in that new life. And we don't want that. God saves by His will, through His Spirit, and this is good news. It would not be an exaggeration then. I don't like exaggeration in preaching. So it would not be an exaggeration to say that this truth, the freedom of God's Spirit to grant new life, this truth is the heartbeat of zealous, committed evangelism and missions. Think about it now. By nature, human beings are mired in sin's darkness. We are dead in sin, to use Paul's language. What hope is there for such a lifeless situation? What confidence would we have that any new life will come, that the good news will reach anyone? What, what's our confidence? The answer is the power of God in His Holy Spirit. This is our confidence, friends. Far from undermining our zeal, in evangelism and missions, this truth so clearly summarized in verse 8 is what compels us to reach out to our neighbors, to evangelize our kids, and even to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. 
On our own, we cannot create spiritual life. But through the Spirit, God does the unthinkable. He gives new life to His people. Church, this is why we ought to pray for the work of the Spirit in the hearts of those who hear the gospel. Prayer is how we depend on the work of the Spirit to grant new life. Pray for those who hear the gospel that God would give them new life. Pray for our missionaries that God would work through their ministries to open the eyes of the blind and to give new hearts to those who are dead in their sins. Parents, pray for God to give your children the new birth. Prayer is how we depend upon the work of the Spirit. One way to clearly apply the biblical doctrine of regeneration is to pray and pray and pray for the Holy Spirit's work. That's because the new birth is nothing less than this. By the Spirit, God grants new life. One final piece to Jesus' teaching on the, on the new birth. The picture would be com- incomplete without this. This is verses 9 to 15. This is what connects the Spirit's work to the church's witness. Truth number three. By grace, God calls people through the preaching of the cross. By grace, God calls people through the preaching of the cross. We find in verse 9 that Nicodemus still doesn't understand. How can these things be? He asks. Jesus rebukes him. Verse 10. Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. It's the same point as verse 7. Jesus is just teaching what the Old Testament uh, taught. And Nicodemus as a teacher of Israel ought to know that. But then an, an important shift happens. Or we might say an important clarification. We've said that Nicodemus doesn't understand. But Jesus in verse 11 points to something deeper than an intellectual problem. Look at verse 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. Now Jesus affirms his authority in verse 11. He's the one who has come down from heaven, as he says in verse 13 in just a moment. That means that Jesus speaks from a place of knowledge. He speaks of what he has seen. As the Son of God, he speaks with divine authority regarding the work of the Spirit and the plan of the Father. Unlike Nicodemus, Jesus speaks of what he knows. But here's the the shift. Nicodemus has not received Jesus' testimony. Friends, that's the same as saying Nicodemus has not believed Jesus' testimony. In fact, look at verse 12. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Notice that Jesus does not say Nicodemus failed to understand. He said Nicodemus failed to believe. Jesus is teaching on the ground floor here. That's what he means when he says, I'm telling you earthly things. This is cookies on the bottom shelf stuff for Nicodemus, and he doesn't get it. So how could Jesus tell him deeper things? 
Nicodemus has not believed. His failure is not intellectual. It's, it's spiritual. And so we come to this, we come to a great crossroads in our understanding of the gospel, in our understanding of how the new birth happens. We just learned that the new birth happens by the Spirit as God grants new life. And yet, in verse 12, we learn that Nicodemus's failure is a failure to believe. It's a failure of faith. So, so this is the crossroads. Where does God carry out the work of granting new life by His Spirit? Where does it happen? Where is the Spirit working so that people believe? Well, notice where things end in the passage, at least for this week, verses 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. We're going to focus more on eternal life next Sunday, Lord willing. But for now, do you remember Numbers 21? Numbers 21. Do you remember that passage? The people of Israel are murmuring against God. And so the Lord sent a plague of fiery serpents into their camp. This was the most terrifying story in the Old Testament for me as a child. God sent fiery serpents into the camp to bite them. But after the people pled with Moses... God instructed that a bronze serpent be made and it be raised up on a pole. And God said that anyone who looked on the bronze sculpture would be delivered. Rather than die, they would receive life. And God's word proved true, didn't it? In Numbers 21, those who believed God's word and looked on the serpent, the bronze serpent, were delivered. Here in John chapter 3, Jesus is using Numbers 21 to illustrate his work on the cross. Let me explain what I mean. Jesus is the Son of Man who will be lifted up for the salvation of God's people. That verb, lifted up, refers to Jesus' death and His resurrection. He will be lifted up on the cross as the sacrifice for His people's sin. And through His resurrection, He will be lifted up to glory as the King over God's kingdom. Just as those who looked on the bronze sculpture were delivered, so also those who look upon the crucified Christ in faith will be delivered as well. They will not die in their sins, but will receive new life and live eternally with God in His kingdom. That's the good news that Nicodemus and you and me and every person who's ever been born must believe. We must believe in the message of Christ and Him crucified for the salvation of His people. Now, I said this is one of those great crosswords, uh, crossroads in understanding the gospel. Here's, here's what I mean. How does the new birth happen? Only by the work of God's Spirit. We cannot make ourselves born again. But where does the Spirit work most often in order to give the new birth? Answer Verses 14 and 15, through the preaching of Christ and Him crucified. As the message of the gospel is preached, 
God, by His Spirit, works through His Word to do what only God can do. Give new life to His people. And as that new life springs into existence in the human heart by God's grace, repentance and faith in Christ follow just as sure as the day follows the dawn. So so do you see the connection? God alone grants the new life by His Spirit. And the Spirit works where? Through the message of the cross. Through the message of Christ and Him crucified. Church, this is what we mean when we say that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. By grace alone, the Spirit grants new life. Through faith alone, God carries out that work through the preaching of the gospel, which is received through faith in Jesus Christ. God gives life, and therefore we preach. God gives life, and therefore we witness. God gives life, and therefore we go into all the nations, making disciples and teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded. Where does the Spirit's work happen in the preaching of the gospel? In the message of Christ and Him crucified. So now we have this full-orbed picture of how Jesus defines the new birth what it means, and and how it happens. By nature, no one can enter the kingdom of God. But by His Spirit, God grants new life. And therefore, by grace, God calls people through the message of the cross. We cannot make ourselves be born again. That's God's work, not ours. But we must proclaim the gospel believing that it is in the message of the cross that the Spirit works through God's Word to give life, leading to faith in Jesus' name. Friends, that is the new birth according to Jesus, what it means and how it happens. I want to end with Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, perhaps out of secrecy, maybe even doubt. Nicodemus doesn't believe. And at at points he appears scornful. So for a teacher of Israel, it's not a good picture, is it? But did you know that this is not the last appearance of Nicodemus in John's Gospel? He shows up two more times. And each time, things are remarkably different. In chapter 7, the Pharisees want to condemn Jesus without a hearing, but guess who defends him? Nicodemus, who even suggests that the Pharisees might learn from Jesus. And then in chapter 19, amazingly, where do we find Nicodemus? At the cross. You find him at the cross with Joseph of Arimathea, and together... Nicodemus and Joseph take Jesus' body for burial. Nicodemus even provided much of what was needed in order to bury Jesus' body. He apparently provided it at his own expense. Does this mean Nicodemus was a believer in Jesus Christ? We don't know for sure. But it does remind us that no amount of darkness is beyond the work of God's Spirit. 
Nicodemus goes from approaching Jesus at night in the dark, hiding, to taking Jesus' body down from the cross and burying it. By the Spirit, God grants life wherever He wills. And so, what do we do? We praise God for giving us new life when we were in darkness. We pray for God to give new life to those who are still in their sin. And we preach the gospel, believing that God's Spirit is powerful to give new life through His Word, leading to faith in Christ. We praise God, we pray, and we preach. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the kindness of Jesus Christ in this passage that he slows down in the midst of his ministry to teach Nicodemus and therefore teach us. And we pray, Father, that our ears would be open and that our hearts would be soft and that we would believe Jesus' teaching on the new birth. We pray that the effect in our lives, Father, would be to praise you, to pray for your work, and then to proclaim the gospel wherever you have us. Father, we pray for those in our midst, if they do not know Christ, that you would grant them the new birth through your word so that they would turn from sin and trust in Jesus Christ and be saved. We pray, Father, for your work to be done now by your spirit. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. And so we pray for the work of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand, and as we prepare to partake in the Lord's Supper together, uh, let's sing about the significance of that.